Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This is episode number 1136 on how to reduce anxiety. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, a former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. Raymond McCauley said, change what you can, manage what you can't. And Leonard Cohen said, there is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Learning how to better understand your mind and work through mental health challenges is one of the toughest, especially in this past year, yet one of the most important things you can do for yourself. And over the years, my negative thinking patterns didn't allow me to live my life to the fullest. It wasn't until I opened up and started to work through these problems from the past that's when I really started to make progress. And we've had a lot of inspiring guests share strategies to help you overcome and manage your mind. So today I want to bring them together to give you the tools that I wish I had earlier in my life. In this episode, we discuss how to overcome negative thinking and self-destructive habits with Dr. Nicole LaPera, understanding the power of the mind and reaching your fullest potential with Wim Hof, the science behind stress and how to manage it properly with Kelly McGonigal, how to cope with feeling overwhelmed and get emotionally unstuck with Katie Morton and so much more. And if you're enjoying this and you think you have a few friends that would love this episode as well, then please copy and paste this link wherever you're listening and share this with them or just use lewishouse.com slash 1136 and send them to the full show notes link as well. If you're first time here, make sure to click the subscribe button over on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave us a review as well when you're finished. Okay, in just a moment, it's It's time to learn how to manage your mind and overcome stress. In this section, psychologist Dr. Nicola Parrish shares how to overcome negative thinking and self-destructive habits. My conversations with Nicole have been a game changer for me, and I know they will be for you as well. How do we overcome that uh, people-pleasing perspective, that overachiever mentality so that it doesn't consume us in a negative way, yeah. but we're still driven to serve at a high level. Yeah, so acknowledging it, I think, is the uh-huh. most important um, aspect of the beginning stages of the journey. So the fact that I'm able to say here um, that, you that, are I, this. Have that, you have this, that yeah. I have that filter, as I call it, that's painting everything that happens in my life, that's the first step of healing. Um, because I, like many of us, wasn't aware of that filter. And it was coloring my experience, and I so I would take any moment and end up feeling badly and not Mm. understanding why. And until I began to view my internal world, I began to see the stories I was creating. So that moment in particular, whatever it might be, was yet another, you know, moment for me to have evidence that I'm not living up to that expectation. So pulling back and, you know, seeing that lens, oh, okay, here's that tendency to compare myself down again, that at least gives me the opportunity to create a new choice, which brings us to the next stage and why my book is called The Work. Um, Because listeners and myself included, oh, many of us could resonate with this. Yes, I'm an overachiever. I have that part in my mind. Yet now what? That part is still there coloring our experiences. So Mm. then it is the work of refocusing my attention, paying less focus, you know, because that's our most powerful um, tool for many of us to begin not spending time spinning down that 
that framework, spinning down that story, mm-hmm. ending up feeling so terrible about myself, pulling my attentional focus away and putting it elsewhere is the best thing we can do for ourselves to begin, of course, the journey of unpacking and unlearning those deep beliefs. Do you think a depressive state comes from an obsessive thought process? Is that what it's, I'm hearing it comes from? Like the more you think and ruminate on, I'm not enough, I never have this, I suck, I'm not worthy, I'm de- not deserving, the more I ruminate on it for longer and longer, is that what's gonna put me in that state of being? It's one of the factors. Uh-huh. Um, it's not the only, and because I would come up against this idea of, and I think a lot of times in the field, it's criticized, think a different thought. Okay, Mm -hmm. I can just reframe my, just to use it very generally, my negative thinking and begin to think more positive. And then if anyone is suffering from depression or those symptoms, I obviously can relieve those and feel better about myself. Mm -hmm. Um, The issue with depression and anxiety and a lot of the things that we're diagnosed with, myself included, is that they're messengers of something deeper. So typically with depression, there might and likely is something physiological also at play. Mm. Um, There could be some gut issues that are Mm -hmm. causing inflammation um, that is causing actual inflammation in the brain um, and causing those symptoms of depression. There might be some nervous system activation, getting stuck in our parasympathetic, Mm -hmm. in particular nervous system that results in that hypo energetic arousal when I have no energy, I have no interest. Um, So typically it's thoughts and the physiology that then maps on to thinking those thoughts for a very long time. Though my point of my work, my point of working holistically is to acknowledge the whole story Uh because I'm sure even a lot of listeners right now might have tried an affirmation, tried to think a positive thought and not actually been able to create change because likely they are again living in a state of physiological dysregulation. Right, so you might be able to change your thought but if you're having alcohol at the same time, or if you're eating candy and processed foods all day, and you're in a stressful environment physically, then it may not also shift your your feelings or your emotions, right? It's kind of like you have to have a holistic approach to what is the root, what's causing me to feel this overwhelmed stress or depression, right? Yeah, and it's beautiful that you're using the word stress and very Mm -hmm. astute because stress is is insidious in our culture Mm -hmm. um, and it causes not only psychological but a whole range of physical health symptoms and ultimately diagnoses. Stress is really problematic um, and unfortunately many of us as even adults are experiencing increasing amounts of stress um, and in my opinion having very limited coping schools, tools or resources (laughs) to deal with that stress. So our bodies are simplest, like really simply, very much stuck in an overstressed, overwhelmed state that's, again, making change and transformation incredibly difficult. What are the best coping strategies for humans to help us get out of stress and into more peaceful, calm states that you've seen? The best ones. The best coping strategies. Yeah. Not like <laughs> the bad ones, but what are the good ones? Yeah, we are. We have the, the access to the most powerful regulator of stress through our breath. Um, if we can learn two things, um, first to be just present to or a witness around our body's just regular breathing patterns. As simple as this sounds, the way our body breathes, um, if we can cultivate a very full, deep breath, very calming breath, chances are our body in that moment is in that state of relaxation, mm. is receptive to the world around, is feeling safe to express. 
the large majority of us aren't, aren't breathing in that very calm, rhythmic way. Most of us have evolved to become chest-based, very shallow breathers. And the reason why I even just talk about our natural rhythm is because our mind is constantly scanning our body and its processes. Yeah breathing in particular, because for our mind, that's a marker of how aroused we are, how stressed our body is. So what I noticed when I dropped into my body was that I always breathed very shallow from my chest, and at times, I would stop breathing. And Just that correlated with stress. The oh, more stressed man. I am, the more I'm actually holding my breath throughout the day. So just that simple act of witnessing to me showed evidence of, wow, Nicole, your body is stressed out day in and day out. Regardless of what's happening in the actual current mm -hmm. moment, your body continues to send signals of stress. And the reason why listeners who might struggle with anxiety or panic, as I once did, why this is problematic is because, like I said, our mind is scanning down and it's going to begin to then think stressful thoughts. Mm. It's going to scan the environment for what's wrong. And as we all know, we're very good at identifying what's <laughs> wrong negative, yes. in that moment. And then before we know it, the reason why I offer this is now we're caught in a loop. Because yes. now I'm thinking stressful thoughts, further activating my body. So dropping in, noticing our body's natural rhythms can give us some clues as to how activated we are. And then, of course, the next action step we can take, if you're living in an overactivated nervous system as I am, is to begin to harness intentional breathing, beginning to either direct <laughs> my breath down into my belly if I am in that shallow, stressed out, activated state, or if you're like I described earlier, having no energy, almost feel like you're not here energetically, mm -hmm. we actually wanna cultivate that chest base, the more Wim Hof, mm -hmm. shallow, activated um, tool of breath mm -hmm. work to activate our to get energy system, to actually up our energy into our system. So we can use breath work in either direction mm -hmm. to control our body's re responses. And while this is great for the body and why I talk about it is it can build body balance back in as many of us need it, it's also so empowering. Now, right through an intention, through doing something differently, I can actually create change. And I speak as someone who did suffer from debilitating anxiety and panic attacks, and I know mm -hmm. how overwhelming and out of control that can feel. So I mentioned that last piece of empowerment um, for all of those suffering with anxiety out there, because that can be the steps back to actually creating change and saying, hey, wait, I can control my body and my body doesn't have to control me when it hits that peak of panic. What is happening when someone is in a panic attack? Like, what were the feelings like? How long did it last? And how does someone get out of a panic attack moment? So panic, and again, I'm just simplifying it um, for understanding purposes. It's that ultimate state of nervous system activation, when your body is literally geared up to fight, flight, or, f or flee, which is usually what happens next. Um, we go into that old coping tool or that old resource yeah. that we once used. Um, it feels very different for each of us. Some of us actually think it can feel, as I once did, like a heart attack. Wow. Um, I describe an episode in my book where I had just gotten home. Um, I was in a psychoanalytic training program and as part of my training, every Saturday um, I would sit in courses to learn how to be a practitioner of the work of psychoanalysis. And um, one of my courses was a group model where I was a participant <laughs> in group psychoanalytic therapy. So anyone listening who's been in any therapy, a lot of feelings can come up. So it was a particularly emotional group I had had that morning. 
Um, and I came home and I was with my partner at the time. And long story short, I started to have symptoms. I started to feel sweaty. I started to feel clammy. I almost turned gray looking. Mm. Um, and my heart in particular started to beat problematically or of concern. It was pounding. It just felt weird. And I'm someone who had had panic attacks before. I know a panic attack can mimic a heart attack. Yet I was in my down puffy coat, curled up in a ball with my cell phone in my hands, just waiting to call 911 because I was convinced that this must be something that's physiologically wrong with me. So some of us, it can feel like a heart attack. Some of us, it's just that elevation where my heart feels like it's through the roof. I might get that panicked feeling. I'm crawling out of my skin. And it's very, very scary. And what it is, again, it's an extreme state of that nervous system activation. So the best tool is to help our nervous system go back into that peaceful, calm, safe place. Now, this is where I want to acknowledge that those of us who are in the throes of a panic attack and have never practiced intentional breathing or breath work probably aren't going to be successful. And this is, of course, what we want to do. We want to use the tool only when we need it. This is where we really want to learn how to cultivate that balance in our bodies outside of that 10 moment, Mm. outside of that acute where panic is crashing down around me. We want to consistently learn how to drop into our bodies, take a temperature check. How safe is my body? Am I in activation mode or am I calm? And when I'm not calm, learning how to balance my body then so that when, as I feel my panic obviously increasing over time, I can learn how to downregulate myself. Is the panic attacks, what's the root of that? Is it someone not being aware of their body and breathing? Is it allowing stressful thoughts to come in? Is it all of it stacking up over time and then there's a breaking point? What is the root of panic attacks? It becomes all of it over time because our nervous system works outside of our awareness. Uh. Um, We have a function, it's called neuroception. It's essentially where we're constantly scanning the environment, energies even included. We're not even aware of it. We're not even aware of it. Our body, our eyes, everything. And it's primed to look for threat. However, threat gets defined based on our past experiences. This is how we can't kind Uh of extricate the two. Um, So something that felt overwhelming back here continues to color my world in my now moment. Even if um, it's not really happening. Outside of my awareness, Uh right? So that's really important to consider. That's the feeling that many of us get when we maybe walk into the room or up that alley and just something feels off. We're responding. Our nervous system is always responding to everything in the moment. However, it's doing so based on our past moments. So we could be throwing ourselves, unbeknownst to ourselves, into nervous system activation. And some of us are living in it all day long. Crazy. When we feel stressed, is it affecting the actual brain or is it affecting the mind? And how do we regulate the two? of the thoughts, the ideas, the mind, the consciousness, I guess, the awareness, or the brain, the physical brain itself? What is stress going up into the brain or is it actually attacking the mind kind of like outside of the brain? It can affect both. Um, It affects the brain structure in two ways. Um, The first way is through actual inflammation. Stress 
the cortisol that typically is associated with stress activates our body, activates immune system responses, where inflammation is the predominant response. Mm -hmm. Our brain is actually covered by a very thin film, a blood-brain barrier that's very penetrable. Things can get through. Um, and one of the issues is when inflammation actually lands within our, our brain. Um, so that can begin to cause structural changes in our brain, mm. as can our mind. The way we think, the way we process our brain can actually change the brain pathways, the systems, areas that we're firing up more frequently than other areas with the most predominant one. So many of us are living from our emotional brain, our amygdala, our hippocampus, all of those deeper centers, as opposed to our prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. um, so this is why it gets complicated. And there are very many brain scans out there of depressed individuals, of anxious individuals, of individuals diagnosed with ADHD or ADD, of autistic, right? All of these diagnoses map onto the brain showing changes Though it's the chicken or the egg conversation right. because those changes, my argument is, occur as a result of the human's functioning. I believe as far back as in utero, I know that my system was impacted by my mom, by the hormones raging through her body because mm. I was sharing that body. I was sharing a blood source. I go as far to believe my mom's beliefs, her thoughts wow. about herself, about me as a baby in her belly, about what my future would be, were impacting, again, my developing. So our environments, I believe, begin to shape us. So hypothetically, I could have came out as a baby infant showing, like I likely did, structural changes wow. in my brain, possibly even an upregulated nervous system hard to differentiate whether genetically that's just what it was for me or again whether my earliest environment shaped and i believe in the science of epigenetics that our environments are always shaping ourselves down to our physiology our genetics our environment is our shaping environment our, is our dna shaping our dna and then mm -hmm. shaping our systems shaping how our brain looks and functions shaping how our body looks and functions yeah well, what's that study where they put like love and anger on water bottles? The, Did you ever see that? I can't the, remember. The ice, yes. Yeah, the ice. And then it's either like dark crystals, like mm -hmm. dead crystal, you know, or it's mm -hmm. like these beautiful snowflakes. Mm -hmm. I can't remember what that study was. Or that yeah, test. where they did the frequency of different emotions. Yes. Um, and had then ice that would freeze, I guess, ultimately, yeah. and it would crystallize in different Isn't structural. And it's beautiful because what I see is that shows evidence of how impactful the things that we can't see mm -hmm. are. And I think the collective is waking up to the reality that there are a lot of these things that we can't see. There are energies, there are inner knowings, there are messages of all sorts that again, we're responding to outside of our awareness that are there, even though we can't see them mm -hmm. or the science isn't showing it in the graph that fits very comfortably into our human mind. Right. Anytime we're in that expanse of unknown, it's very uncomfortable for us as humans. Well, it's like we can't see our thoughts but those thoughts will impact us, right? It will impact our, our structure of our brain, our body, how we feel when we think a certain thing as well in the environment. Um, you, you mentioned people-pleasing overachiever kind of archetype, right? What are the different types of archetypes that human beings have? Is one people-pleaser, overachiever, 
What are the main ones, I guess? Yeah, so just an archetype. So we're having everyone knows what we're talking about here. Um, again, it's a very conditioned pattern way of being. Uh-huh. Um, we don't, as humans, typically fall neatly. Um, some of us might <laughs> right, see ourselves right. in only one archetype. Some of us might see evidence in different archetypes. We might see different sides of ourselves in different types of relationships. Mm-hmm. So multiple archetypes might apply. Again, they're not you know be all end all categories, right, right. but they're general ways of being, typically how we're relating to others mm-hmm. in relationships or to the world at large. So I mentioned the overachiever because that's one of my predominant ones. <laughs> Some others are the caretaker, um, the person who's always endlessly showing up to service others' needs. But never sh- their own. Never their own. Um, the yes person who can't say no, who's always, again, in another model of service. There's a hero worshiper archetype, always outsourcing, always looking for the person or the thing that has an answer as opposed to within. Um, Life of the party, another archetype Uh that's pretty common. The person who never allows any negative, if you will, even though I don't love those words, sadness, any lower Uh um, kind of vibration energy to be part of their experience. They're always happy. Everything's always great. Um, Again, acknowledging that there's a range of of human Mm -hmm, emotion. And if if we're cutting off you know, the negative, we're usually cutting off aspects of our lived experience. Yeah. So they're general ways of being. Um, typically, maybe listeners can know kind of the way they show up in relationships. If not. One of my favorite parts about my job is that I get the opportunity to travel a lot. And in fact, I'm recording this right now while I'm in Mexico. And actually, I was thinking about something that I wanted to share because I get a lot of questions from so many people about different side hustle ideas. So here's one for those of you out there that are on the go a lot like I am or traveling a lot. When you're staying in your Airbnb on your trips, have you ever thought about how you could be making extra money by hosting through Airbnb while your home is vacant? If you're interested in an extra stream of income, Airbnb hosting is an easy place place to start and it's like giving your home some company while you're away. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So listen, we all know life is full of yada yada, like those quote unquote free trials that somehow still charge your card for something or when companies have those sneaky gotchas hiding deep in the fine print. And I know you've dealt with yada yada before, like those bills that keep going up and up for no reason at all. Or when budget airlines promise a cheap fare, but then charge you for every little thing until you realize you're paying more than you would have somewhere else. And yes, it is possible to outsmart yada yada, like triple checking airline deals to make sure all you need is already included, but you don't take yada yada in life. So don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro by T-Mobile has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. When you want the best, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. Like when you're trying to buy tickets for the best seat at your favorite team's big game or when you're hiring for your business and you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. With ZipRecruiter, you can find qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com greatness. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I believe finding the right team member is one of the most important steps in setting up my company 
for success. We like to ensure our new hires will be a good fit before they're even on the team. So I am grateful that I have ZipRecruiter's help when we want to grow the team fast. Amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash greatness. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash greatness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Being a witness, seeing how are you showing up? What mm. is your primary mode of relating to other people? Um, this is based in the idea that typically our primary mo primary modes of relating are based on our earliest relationships. Mm. Um, we get very repetitive. So I was, like I described, my overachievement didn't start in adulthood. I began to assume that role in my childhood relationships, the person who's always performing in one way or another or trying to keep the peace um, in one way or another. That was me. Keeping the peace was me, yeah. for sure. And so if we are aware of that first, kind of our main archetypes, is the next step learning how to heal or is it learning how to reparent or what would be the next phase that we should... In doing the work. So the first, as I always acknowledge, for some of us, just having that awareness. Yes, yeah, I'm continuing to have my needs unmet in relationships because that's usually the byproduct of assuming roles or wearing these masks. Mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. my full self isn't being expressed, or I'm chronically not acknowledging any of my needs. For some of us. Yeah acknowledging that role and typically where it came from, though that's not mandatory. You don't need to know the thing that hurt me. Um, but for some of us, that can be relieving. That can offer an alternate version of narration as opposed to I'm broken, which mm. is usually where we end up. Oh, I'm unfulfilled in my relationships because I'm unlovable, because something's wrong with me. So for some of us, just having that awareness, no, I'm the overachiever, I'm the caretaker because of things that have happened mm -hmm. as a result of my experiences. For some of us, that's healing in and of itself. Is that a, are these coping mechanisms then? Typically. These kind of master archetypes. Yes. It's like we do this because- Our way of being becomes, I call it the onion. Mm. We, by the time we're in adulthood, we're living such a conditioned way, typically as a result of coping with something mm -hmm. that was too overwhelming or too difficult at one time. And the coping, is it all back to feeling seen, heard, and acknowledged? In is it like we do these things so that someone sees us yeah, or acknowledges us? In my us? opinion. Yeah. And or to then, as a byproduct, avoid the pain that once was. Right? If, if showing, right, so the life of the party, I'll use as an example. If at one point when I showed sadness, you know, I didn't feel, it didn't feel accepted given whatever has happened, right? right then I, if I stop, if I modify, if I do not tell mom the sad thing that happened, I don't have to feel that pain of that mm. rejection. So I just say a little less of my sadness and a little less of my sadness over time. So it's a coping to avoid that hurt that was once unbearable. It's to either be seen or to avoid pain. Yeah. Is that it? Yeah. So how should we, uh, what archetype should we live in? So once we become aware, right, if it, you know, the relief can go so far for yes. some of us, then we're still left with us and our conditioned way of being. <laughs> right, right. We're still left with that habit, that pull. Um, like I shared throughout my book, even my overachiever is right there, ready, right, for that reaction in each and every moment. Mm. So cultivating new responses is ultimately the next step. Responses that we now get to choose. Um, mm. as an adult. At one point, we weren't gifted with choice. We were in environments that we had no say around. Now, I can show up. 
I can make a new choice. So I can learn a new way of being. I can begin to show maybe all aspects of myself walking through the discomfort that will come along with mm. change and the vulnerability that's part of the process now of showing a new part of myself, though over time that allows me to cultivate my full self-expression. So the work, as my book offers, is still part of the journey. Yeah. Um, awareness isn't going to create change because those habits are mapped down into our subconscious pathways that are at the ready. We've gotten really good at firing them up and our brain actually prefers that path. Mm. So showing up in our conscious mind, teaching ourselves that we always have that pathway that leads to all of the consequences that they've always led to. And then this pathway could lead to something else that will probably be uncomfortable because it's new, it's uncharted territory, though it could help me march toward a future of my mm -hmm. choosing. How does someone learn to reparent themselves if their parents are no longer here? Like, how do they even go down that path, which might seem just a little weird? It's like, uh, am I supposed to reparent myself? That sounds weird. What is a non-weird way to approach yeah. that? <laughs> and is that us connecting to our five-year-old self or whenever that situation occurred, so first started where that was painful and having a conversation and, and actually connecting to that child? Is it a daily practice of connecting to something on the inside? What does that look like? Yeah, I appreciate the question and I will acknowledge too that I think anytime we hear this idea of child and we're an adult, uh -huh. I mean, some of us into, you know, years into adulthood, it does feel uncomfortable. It does feel like, what do you mean? I'm out of childhood. I don't mm -hmm. have that aspect of myself. I'm an adult now. Um, I'm of the belief that our inner child is carried with us in many different ways. And we could start with maybe the, the least scary um, through our daily habits and patterns. Mm -hmm. Typically, you're caring for your body, I imagine, unless you made an intentional shift at somewhere in your adult life, the same way you were taught to. Um, how our physical needs are identified and met in adulthood typically is a reflection of how they were once met in childhood, how attuned our caregivers were to their own mm -hmm. physical needs, obviously then transferring that into our own attunement with our bodies, identifying what our individual needs are so that over time, we can assume that responsibility of yeah. meeting them ourselves. Yeah. I'm of the belief that all of us were raised by humans that are limited by the tools that they had. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll be the first to admit, I know that I was raised by two parent figures that didn't really have a full connection to their body and to its physical needs. Um, so again, when they were parenting me or cultivating that awareness in me, it was from that much more limited um, consciousness state or that disconnection. So. Not surprising, I ended up being very disconnected from my own body's needs. Now this applies to our emotional world too. Chances are the habits and patterns, the way we tend to our emotions in adulthood is a direct reflection of how we tended or how we were modeled or what coping tools were even available to us at one time in one place. So to do the work of reparenting, we could just see ourselves, witness ourselves in adulthood, see the areas where we are feeling like we show up for our needs. Do we acknowledge physical needs in our daily life? Acknowledging that our body has them day in and day out. Mm -hmm. Or are we so disconnected that we don't even know what they are? Same thing emotionally. Right. What is our emotional climate? How do we navigate emotions when we have them? And again, can we begin to create new habits? So that's what reparenting, the approachable version sure, is. Sure. Um, can I create new habits and patterns in any of these areas, physical, emotional, or spiritual, that better serve me? 
In this section, Wim Hof shares how we can learn to understand the power our mind has over us and how to use it to reach our fullest potential. How important is it to see the vision, to see the goal well far in advance so you can prepare for it as opposed to just uh, hoping it happens? Yes. Uh, <clears throat> know that the power of the mind is so, uh, uh, can be so strong. I've learned it now that uh, uh, whatever I think will become reality. And my mission is not materialistic gain so much. Yeah, of course, I need to take care of my family. Mm -hmm. And that's all done. But uh, how much ca uh, do you, uh, do you ne uh, need money and materialistic uh, things? It's only up till a degree that it uh, satisfies yeah. and uh, that it makes you happy. And then from there, it's just gr money grieving more, 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 more. Hey, fine, not with me. I like happiness, strength, and health. So I got my mission. And anything I'm thinking therein is uh, is becoming reality. Mm. So, and sometimes I test it because I'm dealing with people. I deal with a, a scientific establishment, with the existent establishment of how to make money and uh, industry and uh, and all that. Uh, so I have to interact mm -hmm. and learn how to reach my goals therein. It's not only me. It's uh, receiving, sending, mm. receiving, sending until I reach the goal. Right. What is my goal? My goal is to the school of greatness. Mm. Life is great, man. <laughs> yes, and is. that it is. And now we have to bring the fundamentals into our schooling system. Because we love our kids. Absolutely. Yeah. Caring and sharing begins over there. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's not only about uh, this uh, the society. Mm -hmm. I th you know, in Baltimore, I, saw, I just saw a documentary on Baltimore, and they said it's a shame of America or something. You know, all these uh, the, the back uh, streets and uh -huh. they have no money, no possibilities. This and that. And they get into this loop, and uh, now they have begun to meditate on the school the, with the kids, and uh, and it has broken through this depressive state of being and I, I think that's great mm -hmm. that's only meditation already is stop go uh, uh, and uh, go within the limbic system yeah and take away the anxiety and live there because you know what happens if you if you don't do that the dominant neocortex brain our thinking brain is able to extract 25 percent more blood flow wow. all the time so it's taken it from somewhere else. That are, is the limbic system and the brainstem. And thus, the chemistry inside that brain is changing. And logically, if the chemistry changes, no accessibility, no mm -hmm. uh, be, not being able to control or to enter, not feeling peaceful yeah. and the depth anymore. It's all logic. Mm. So uh, meditation is able uh, possibly to break through therein and children are still uh, very open uh, to it and they recognize the, uh, the nature of uh, yeah. our mind. Yeah. I want you to ask a question in a moment, so have one ready. But I, I'm writing a book about masculinity. It's called The Mask of Masculinity. Wow. The, the things that hold men back from their true greatness. Wow. And I'm curious to get your opinion and your idea about what masculinity means to you. 
you're someone that people look up to as this, you know, adventurer, this guy, this guy who pushes the limits, this, you know, they might have different thoughts about you because you do these extreme things for yourself. Beautiful question. So what do you think masculinity is? I mean, you? the macho thing, you know, I did it all. I swam under the ice, climbed Mount Everest, <laughs> Kilimanjaro, run marathons without training, hang by one finger and the... And many other uh, things. I have exhausted my muchness. So, uh, <laughs> but I'm still there. Huh? I, I, I still want to, A, I, I want to be sane. I want to be strong, healthy, and happy. Okay. Uh, at my will. So, January, I'm going to do this stupid mm -hmm. feat like uh, uh, barefoot uh, going up uh, Kilimanjaro. But the real, the real value isn't now uh, the macho thing, the masculinity. Is in achieving uh, happiness for your children, uh, care, caring and sharing, as much as for. I think you, the masculinity is is being uh, tested by how much love you are able to spread. Because if you do so, you are the protector, and that makes you a real man, the protector of emotion, of softness, mm. being able to be for everybody. Wow! And how we do it. You do it like this, Louis House. How? Like this. The school of greatness. Mm. How to bring the school of greatness. Now we are coming together. Here we are able to, you know, to bind these minds and bring it as a message, uh, something yeah. new. And uh, it's happening. It's happening. And that is my idea of uh, masculinity. How much uh, love are you able to protect for your uh for your loved ones that's powerful do you feel like you still do you feel like you need to prove anything to yourself or to others by doing these feats or do you feel like it's more to show people what's possible yes it's a, a, i mean the 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 strong edges are gone uh, of that um but would you say that was you in the past yes you wanted to prove and oh yeah 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 i lost my wife in 95 mm. she suicided i stayed alone with four kids then you, you're just broken hearted. Hmm. And uh, society goes on like with the speed of, uh, of a train. And if you don't catch on, you lose it. You know? uh, uh, but my kids made me uh, like uh, uh, survive, be strong, everyday, present. And uh, nature uh, cured me yeah. because going into nature and into the emotion. So. Um, yeah, that, uh, that's what I, I forgot mm. the question. Sorry. Do you feel like you've you're you're not doing it to prove your your oh, yeah. anymore? You're doing it to show people what's possible. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, right now, yes. Uh, uh, you know, to inspire by 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 showing it scientifically that everybody is able to do that. Yeah. It's taking away ignorance big time. Mm -hmm. I think the the big devil is in ignorance. Mm -hmm. And if we take it away, then the love appears, you know, then there yeah. is no, that, uh, you are able to program yourself, your yeah. DNA. Yes, we proved it. Uh, you are able to control strength, happiness, uh, and, uh, and health. Yes, we, we did it. And now we are going to demystify what is expanding consciousness, mm. which is actually the natural state of our mind. That's why we are born to feel the, uh, the, the sense in depth of spirituality because it's love. Mm.
you have a question more for the practical side of things or the breathing sometimes speaking for myself personally when you're already kind of at the peak of anxiety or anxious or stressed out it's hard to then say oh just relax and breathe because you're just so amped up already so what are some things that you can recognize either as you're kind of getting anxious or overwhelmed that could stop you to breathe or how yes uh, you know uncontrolled stress hormone people have to notice uncontrolled stress hormone uh, will culminate in anxiety out of control to uh, if you do this uh, breathing in the morning then all the day you're uh, like alkaline hmm. anxiety is because the acidity in the tissue is becoming too high and when uh, chemistry is wrong it gets out of your control the brain alters chemistry but it's not able to deal with it anymore with the amount of acid, uh, acidity in the tissue. Now, if you do this breathing, and we have shown this just in a completed study, that uh, people, uh, people's pH level, bang, up, 20 minutes. So really high. So you're saying you're unable to and be stressed. I, yeah, sorry? You're unable to be stressed when your, your level is that high, is what you're saying. Yes. Yeah, it's, yeah. Less, it's more resistant to stress. Stress is a uh, stress hormone. It's eliminated from your body, essentially. It's the natural state of ours to be able to uh, control stress. But this one got uh, out of line. Chemistry is wrong. And we do not know how to uh, uh, take away uh, the, 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 this wrong ca chemistry, which is acidic in the uh, tissue. Now, if you do this in the morning, you not only uh, make it more alkaline and, de uh, uh, and suddenly your stress hormone mechanism is within your control. You can take a lot more. And uh, hey, what's this? Hey, <laughs> I feel a lot better. How? Because you uh, changed at will your chemistry in, in, into the right one. The, the natural one. So uh, five hours later, they, uh, they took the blood and they saw high uh, pH level within 20 minutes. And then five hours later, they took it again. And they say it's still saw it. So this is a very effective way to prevent uh, and it. To prevent. Mm -hmm. And uh, if they really got an attack or something, psychosis or this or that or whatever, just do the four-minute exercise. Because it resets the uh, nervous system. Nervous system is related to uh, the directory of the hormonal system, the brainstem. And we do it because we exhaust at that moment, at will, uh, uh, the, the brainstem's mm -hmm. uh, parameter for oxygen. And it shoots in, bang, uh, the adrenaline. And the adrenaline, bang, uh, uh, resets. Uh, the body to mm. its most of, of uh, effectivity. Right. So the cold is the way of training the body. So the cold itself isn't what provides the... The cold? The calm is how you train yes. your body to... We use the cold to see if you are able to remain calm. That means Under that the, the internal mm. yes, mm. that means that the internal processes are within your control. Mm. So the cold is your mirror. You gotta love it. It's it's not fucking freezing cold. And it's, <laughs> no, it's a mirror, and it shows you you are in your natural state, and therein you can handle anything any other stress. So it's a practice. Anything. Practice in the cold. If you're fine there, you should be able to be fine in the world. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. I like it. And just to repeat the question, 
Sarah was asking so that everyone can hear it, was asking how do you um, understand when you're dealing with a lot of stress, how to be aware of it, and Wim was replying by preventing it, by practicing it in the morning, and your pH level should be higher to be able to withstand the stress. Any person can show it by himself with a pH paper. Mm-hmm. Is that what, you lick, what do you do? You lick that or what do you do? What's the yo, pH yo, paper? Uh, uh, pee on it. Gotcha. Uh, uh, Saliva yeah. or pee. It has to be. Saliva you know. or pee before, <laughs> after. Before. There you go. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's gotta be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Do you have any other questions? It's good, right? Okay. Um, I want to ask this question. You've done so many incredible things. You've done so many things, broken records. You know, every scientist wants to research you, you know, all these different things. What's the thing that you've done, either that we know of or we don't know of, that you're the most proud of? Oh, it's interesting. You know, every time you do something like that, you go into it 100%. So the intensity of the experience every time is big. And then to make a difference, I mean, imagine six kilometers high, uh, like uh, 20,000 feet, and... uh, just in sh- short, on Mount Everest, and uh, suddenly there is no guide, nobody, <laughs> and you're standing there, and there's a whiteout uh, in a blizzard, and you don't know the way, you can't see the way, it's just everything is white. And <clears throat> then, uh, at that moment, I just confronted myself, you know, your mind, but, 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 uh, it's all happening, and uh, and uh, you might, your mind can do thousand shapes, but I felt such a deep confidence, <laughs> such a deep peace overcoming me. It's like when 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 a person has got a baby, you know, the mother has got the baby. Okay, that's mom. But I experienced because I got five kids, and every time when I had a baby, then some, uh, at a certain moment it engulfs a a, a a sudden feeling of. I want to protect that baby. And it's taken over. And those are very deep moments. And that's the way nature dealt with us to have the man take care because it's such a good feeling. So he always wants to go and take care. <laughs> and that, that, a thing like that happened as well there on Mount Everest. And I got many situations, but that's one. And the intensity of uh, when a, a feeling overcomes you, is bigger than your ego, than your attitude. That yeah, that's really impressive. Mm, love it. And then it took me three hours to f- just go follow my gut and sense, and then I came at six thousand four hundred meters or you know uh, higher up, uh, and I was received by Tibetans in the tent, and they did not look even up. Man in shorts, in a blizzard, coming out of it, coming in. They 
thought uh, I was a sort of a pilgrim or something. <laughs> yeah, a believer. Yeah. <laughs> God's craziness. <laughs> yeah. Because they're all bundled up and you're yeah. in shorts. Yeah. That must have been a funny sight. Yeah, yeah, amazing. And you're just yeah. walking around like, hey, guys, hey. I, I, I actually felt good. Right. I, I, I overcame myself. Wow. Impressive. Life is impressive. <laughs> it is. What is um, something you want to make sure you do accomplish before your last day? Uh, to live fully all the days before. Uh, that, 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 that's an open one. But um, I want to prove and get it into the schools that greatness is actually the natural state of our mind every day. And as long as this wonder of life is not experienced as such, we have to go and school the people mm. and bring it to science. Yeah. Not school the people, uh, bring, it to, uh, uh, bring it to science and show that spirituality actually is the normal, very sane state of the mind yeah. way nature matter to be. Yeah. So I will keep on trying to make sure at least to take away fear, anxiety, depression, but a whole lot of diseases and uh, mm. show that the cause is actually within us and that we need to change a little bit the consciousness mm. and that it is there. I'm just advocating happiness, strength, and health. And for that, I say, it's there. In this section, health psychologist Kelly McGonigal shares the science behind stress and how we can manage it properly with the way we think about and talk about it. You talk about how we think about stress can either save our lives or kill us. Can you tell us why our thought around stress is more important than the stress itself? Yeah. So I do try to avoid the language of like, if you think about stress the wrong way, it will kill you in part because I actually came to regret um, that I had done a lot of teaching and speaking and writing about how stress itself can kill you. So you know, because I'm a health psychologist, I was trained to view stress as the enemy. And if you look at the science, you can find evidence that stress increases your risk of everything people don't want from you know, heart disease to depression, all of it. But uh, almost 10 years ago, I came across this study that made me really rethink stress. And it was a study that um, tracked about 30,000 adults for almost a decade in the US. And at the beginning of the study, they asked people, first, how stressful is your life? And then also, um, do you believe that your stress is harmful? Do you believe that stress is bad for your health? And so they followed them to find out, like, is it true that stress kills? And what they found is that for the subset of people who had a very stressful life and most strongly believed that their stress was harmful, they had a 43% increased risk of dying from any cause over the next decade. But the people who had the most stressful lives and did not strongly believe that stress was bad for them they were the most likely to be alive at the end of the decade. And the, you know, this study caught my attention because first of all, it suggests that stress is not always the enemy. At least it's not always a risk factor in the way that we think about it. But then also it was making me think like, how many of those deaths was I personally responsible for by going out there trying to convince people that stress was bad for their health and that you know, the stress will kill your brain cells and eventually kill you. Um, so that was kind of like a wake up moment for me 
to start to want to investigate, is it possible that how you think about stress can interact with stress to help you avoid some of the consequences we don't want? And, and maybe even something good about stress worth embracing so that your mindset could help you harness some of your personal strengths, help you harness the strength in your community um, to get some positive outcomes we maybe don't usually associate with stress. So I think I'm trying to like shy away from the idea that like stress isn't bad unless you believe it is, which is sometimes how my work gets um, mm -hmm. summarized. That's, that's not the case. I mean, like you said, I'm a scientist. So, you know, I understand data. Stress is a, is a paradox. Stress is not something that we often get to choose. So it's not like mm -hmm. even if you had a wish list and you could say, I want this much stress and this type of stress, it's not like we have that opportunity. So what I'm really interested in is this idea that we now call it the stress mindset effect, that there are ways of thinking about stress that can make your body's response to stress healthier, that can change what happens in your brain in moments of stress that make you braver, more resilient, more willing to accept help from others, and that these mindsets basically change the trajectory of how stress affects you. That's the big idea that I, I hope to share with people. When do we know that we are experiencing good stress versus bad stress? Yeah, no such thing as good stress or bad stress, I wanna say. That is again, another, I think, a big misconception around stress. Because you know, people will say things like, oh, good stress, it's like the stress of getting a promotion or the stress of winning the lottery or the stress of doing something really exciting that you're good at. You know, like that's good stress. Bad stress is all the stuff we don't want. It's the pain, it's the suffering, it's the loss, yeah. it's the uncertainty, it's uh, what we actually mean when we say we're stressed, it's all of that. So I, you know, forget good stress, bad stress, because it sets us up to think that if we're experiencing what all of us will instinctively say, didn't want this, like the bad stress, um, that's, that's the real stress for most of us. And again, most mm -hmm. of us don't get to choose how stressful our lives are, how stressful the world is. I mean, this, the time we're living in now is a perfect example of that. And if you label things good stress, bad stress, it can lead to things like believing, like let's say you're trying to homeschool your kids right now, and it's enormously stressful, and you're feeling like a bad parent and a bad teacher, and you can't figure out how you're going to get through today, let alone tomorrow. You're, if you believe that's bad stress, you're going to believe, I'm not cut out to be a parent. There's something wrong with my kids. There's something wrong with you know, my life. And I just like, let's, no. Here's the, here's the distinction that I like to make. Life can be difficult. So that, good or bad. But stress is what arises in you when something that you care about is at stake. So it's your thoughts, it's your emotions, it's your biology, it's the stress hormones, it's the adrenaline, it's your desire to reach out to others, it's sometimes a sense of outrage and anger, it's all the stuff that emerges to help you meet a moment that matters. And so what I like to focus on is in moments of stress, some of those instincts are going to be healthy and helpful and others are not. So rather than like stress being good or bad, it's about learning more about your stress responses, the repertoire that's available to you, and how do you get good at stress so that you can tell in a moment of stress, is this a moment that requires slowing down and going within? Or is this a moment that requires being vulnerable and asking for help? Is this a moment that requires ignoring everything else and rising to the challenge because it's an emergency and I need that adrenaline, so let's do it. There's a lot of different ways to be good at stress. And that's the, that's the good that I like to focus on. Yeah, I'm a big believer that our life is an interpretation. 
And the language we use dictates the way we think and feel. And the more we say, I'm stressed, I'm overwhelmed, any word that we use after I am, we start to manifest more in the mind and the body and they connect and we create that. I'm sick. I'm not feeling well. The more we say these things, now we should be aware of these things and not uh, just act like it's not there. But I think when we use language and almost eliminating the word stress or overwhelm and reframing it can be a powerful thing as well. What is your thoughts on how we use words around our, our stress, anxiety, loneliness, depression? How, how should we be using words and language during that time? Um, there are a lot of examples that, that I can go into, but I want to start like from an overview. This is where that improv idea of yes and can be really helpful. Mm -hmm. Because, um, and I know you've talked with other guests about this too, sometimes there's a tendency to want to be so positive that we ignore reality. And uh, you know, one of the things is, uh, one of the reasons that I'm drawn to the research that I do and the topics that I talk about is because it is not in my nature to be positive, right? So anytime- You're a negative, I, you're a negative person. Uh, pessimistic, anxious, <laughs> overwhelmed, existential dread, terrified by life from birth. The world is against you, yeah. Yeah, I'm not, and like, I, not because, not because uh, necessarily life experiences that have shaped that worldview. I mean, I, I believe a lot in genetics also. So I think like that's my temperament. So I'm drawn a lot to these ideas of um, like choosing positive emotions, reframing things, because it's the antidote to my, my habits that can become yeah. destructive. So I think like part of this is, that's another way, like you could, you could introduce me to somebody who needs to seriously come to terms with the reality of suffering and I'd push them in the opposite direction. And you know, oh no, I'm never stressed. Oh, everything happens for a reason. I wanna be like, I would wanna ground them in the opposite that is also true. So, but let's get back to the idea because there is some truth to um, positive language and mindsets. A really simple example. We know that the physiology of anxiety and excitement are really similar in your body and in your brain. And if you were to take someone who's feeling really anxious, measure their heart rate, look at the ratio of stress hormones that are coursing through their bloodstream, and you look at someone who's really excited, they're almost identical. One of my favorite studies was actually they had people jumping out of airplanes and some people were terrified and some people were like, this is what I live for. Physiology looked exactly the same, right? The only difference is the story that they were telling themselves about this experience you know, whether they felt capable of it. And so there's research suggesting that in moments of anxiety, even if truly you're anxious, you're not excited in that moment, <laughs> if you say to yourself, all right, well, my heart is pounding. This means my heart is in it. My heart is giving me energy to meet this moment. And you would try saying to yourself, like, I'm here for this. Or whatever your version of, uh, if, if saying I'm excited feels like too far, just I like to say my heart is in it which is a step from anxiety That's towards excitement. Yeah, it's not um, about lying to yourself or no. faking it till you make it. It's about saying, okay, my body is getting ready for this. I can feel yeah. my body in this moment, so let's roll, you know? And what we know is that as soon as people do that, it starts to subtly shift their physiology in a way that actually is a little bit healthier than like a fight or flight response. Yeah. So, you know, it's more in their favor against them. Yeah. It, it's, yeah, you get more energy, less inflammation in your body. You're starting to move towards a stress state that really is just helping you have energy and courage and enjoy the moment. And it also increases positive emotions like 
like confidence and enthusiasm, it makes you better able to connect with other people too. I mean, there are studies that, that do a similar kind of mindset reset for people who are about to enter a stressful conversation. And like, you know, one of my favorite studies that found that people made more eye contact and they were more likely to mimic the other person's body language in this really natural way that helps build rapport just by reframing their um, anxiety as energy that they could harness as a sign that they care. So that's one example. And that, you know, that's a, a far cry from something like saying, this is good for me, therefore it is. There's something, you know, yeah. these resets are pretty specific because they're grounded in biological reality. I'll give you one other example. One of the biological things that often happens when we're stressed is changes in our brain and in, in the hormones in our body that make us lonely. And you can start to feel really alone. And what most people don't recognize is that is your, just like when your heart is pounding, it's your body trying to give you energy to act. When you feel lonely, that's your brain and your body trying to get you to connect. It wow. is making you hungry for support, for connection, for allies, for teamwork and cooperation. And so it produces like a hunger for social contact and community. And too often people feel that loneliness and what they think is, it's because I'm alone, it's because no one understands, it's because I'm the only one. And they mistake what the signal is and they tell themselves a story that actually makes them further withdraw. So that's another type of like stress signal that when so you understand what, what's happening in your biology, you can embrace it and say, mm. this is a sign to reach out. Wow. So when we feel lonely, we shouldn't continue being lonely. We should actually reach out and create connection yeah. and not say, no one's going to understand my pain right now, so I'm going to stay in my bed for two weeks and watch Netflix alone and get more depressed. That's not the solution. Yeah, often the, you know, it's interesting. I mean, this sort of speaking more broadly as a psychologist, I often find that the beliefs that people tell themselves that are most painful are almost always, it's just telling you what you care about. Like if you, when you're telling yourself a story about being alone and lonely, what you're, what you're actually revealing is like, you know, people care about you and you need to reach out. Like you need your people, you need wow. your community. No one's really thought, I've never really thought about it that way and saying like, if I feel lonely, it means people care about me yeah. and I need to reach because out because they want to get connected to. Your, your body and brain, they aren't stupid. If nobody cared about you, you wouldn't actually experience a desire for community and contact. The brain is very interesting. It's like, you know, it's, it's funny with depression, often one of the, the most insidious things about it is depression will actually start to lie to you and it will start to tell you there's nothing you can do and there's nobody who cares and you actually have a very suppressed stress response. And I don't mean you're not suffering, but stress is, you know, it's a physiological thing and it often involves hormones and energy and brain activity that is trying to push you in the direction of meeting life. And when you're depressed, um, you actually stop feeling like there's anything that you can do to meet this moment or that there are other people who could help you and support you. And like that's, that's what's so insidious and ugly about depression is it's a lie. If you're not in that state, you can really start to read a lot of these signals that we experience as difficult emotions or annoying physiological symptoms of stress as actually pointing you to the strengths that you have and, uh, and how you can respond and what you need in this moment. What's the reason for depression for human beings? Why, do we, why does it happen to so many people when it doesn't feel like there's a, a good purpose for it? What, yeah. what is that reason? There are a lot of theories about this. So I won't say that I, 
I know any of them to be better than other theories, but I do, I do subscribe to the idea that you wouldn't see something in humanity that has no purpose. So a lot of the things that, that we experience as not, like not something we would choose for ourselves, things like grief, anxiety, depression, anger, they serve a function. So one of the thoughts is that depression in its sort of initial form is meant to help you conserve energy and, and withdraw from, from reactivity and, and, and giving away of your energy and attention so that you can kind of pull back, slow down, pause, hmm. and process what's happening in your life. And that's, that's you know, psychologists sometimes call that like reactive depression. It's normal. It's typical when things in your life are difficult. And um, you feel a, completely overwhelmed, completely stressed. Yeah. People don't understand you. And you're just like, okay, I need to take a break to actually reflect on what's happening in my life. Yeah, almost in the way that if you were, you know, if you were running an ultra marathon, you get tired and your body work and brain work very hard to convince you to slow down and take a break because it's in your best interest. Now, so that's one theory. Um, another theory, which I find very plausible is that depression is the um, equivalent of what you see in animals um, called the defeat response. When you get a new car or a new home, your first reaction might be to say things like, oh yeah, or I can't believe it, or booyah. But what you really want to say is the one thing that can get you the help you need. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm is there with the coverage you need for your car, your home, and even boats, motorcycles, RVs, and other things that matter to you. With a State Farm agent, you know someone is there to help you choose the coverage you need. There's so many coverage options, it feels good knowing you can find what fits for you. And when you need ways to get help, State Farm gives you options there too, in person or on the phone with your local agent or on statefarm.com where their award-winning app State Farm lets you do things your way. So when you need help protecting the things that matter most, remember to say, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I don't know about you, but when around 3 p.m. hits, I find myself craving the right refreshment to get me through that mid-afternoon slump. New Pure Leaf Zero Sugar Sweet Iced Tea is full-flavored sweet tea, but without the sugar and the calories. It might take several bottles for you to believe that a delicious sweet tea can really have zero sugar and zero calories. But you know what they say, life is full of surprises. Or in this case, full of flavor. New Pure Leaf Zero Sugar Sweet Iced Tea. Try it to believe it. For 20% off your next 12 pack head to amazon and use promo code 20 pure leaf that's promo code 20 p-u-r-e-l-e-a-f for 20 percent off and this is if you are an animal in the wild and you experience so much um, rejection from your community your family your group so you've been ostracized um, you have very little access to resources on your own. You can't like find a way to survive on your own. You will see these changes happen in the brain and body that they're called the defeat response, but it's this biological cascade that basically convinces uh, animals to crawl away and die, to give up on life. And so like, if you, if you stress out um, a rat enough by say putting them in a cage with a bunch of rats that bully, that rat incessantly and the rat can do nothing to escape and you're not giving it resources and it's got no purpose in life, you will see changes in the, that rat's brain and biology that then if you throw the rat in a bucket of water, it doesn't even try to swim. It huh. just gives up and drowns. So 
So I think that a lot of what we experience as depression um, and why depression is an epidemic uh, in so many cultures right now, so many societies, is that a lot of people are experiencing kind of the equivalent of being in a cage and being bullied and not wow. being clear about what can I do to improve my circumstances? Um, who cares about me? Who can I, how can I contribute to the world? Yeah. And I'm not saying it's necessarily true. I mean, you can feel that way even when something is possible, right? That, that um, it's part of how like, and sometimes it actually is true. Like sometimes you yeah. really are in circumstances that can trigger a defeat response. So I think that's another reason why depression might exist, in which case it's doing nothing for you. And mm. that's, I mean, it's worth knowing that depression can t make your brain turn on you because the depression is not thinking about your well-being. No, that's crazy. Yeah. What do you think are the three or four things that can help us get out of a depressed state of being, whether it's been for weeks, months, years, or moments? Yeah, well here I will go to both the science and my direct experience. One of my big interests in life is helping people who find themselves in circumstances they would not have chosen for themselves. And grief is a big one. Yeah. Or trauma. So what the science says and what I have seen in people's lives and in my own life is if you're on a do-it-yourself path. So first of all, let me say, obviously you use whatever resources are available to you therapeutically and medically. Now that's not my role. So I don't write prescriptions. I don't do therapy. Um, so I, I'm not out there in the world sharing that with people, but obviously everything from antidepressants to, you know, new treatments like deep brain stimulation and, and a magnetic stimulation of the brain, uh, therapy, group therapy, one-on-one, -on -one, all of that stuff, obviously use that and, 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 I believe in the power of sort of all of the evidence-based treatments. Okay, but I, I don't know how to do it, so I'm not out there sharing it. So if you're on a do-it-yourself supportive pathway, in addition to or instead of that other stuff, uh, exercise, number one. And I know how that sounds to somebody who's depressed. I know because I've actually been in the state where, where it was so hard to move I, I would have punched someone who told me to exercise if I had the strength to punch someone who told me to exercise. So I understand what it can be like to be in a physical state of depression or grief where every cell in your motor system is saying, don't move, um, making it impossible to even get to, to, to put one foot in front of the other. That said, there is nothing else you can do that more dramatically and profoundly changes your brain chemistry immediately and in the long term to relieve depression, whether we are talking about the brain chemistry that kicks in, the adrenaline and the dopamine that just gives you a little bit of energy, even if you're depressed, that tends to kick in immediately, mm. to over time, as your brain learns how to benefit from exercise, you will start to get an exercise high that you know, gives you high levels of endocannabinoids and dopamine and endorphins that, that just transform your outlook on like the day that you exercise. And then six weeks, eight weeks, months later, you see changes in the structure of the brain that um, can only be compared to what you see from the most cutting edge neurological treatments for depression, things like deep really? brain stimulation. So yeah, the exercise actually changes your reward system, the structure and function of your reward system in ways that can help it recover from depression or addiction, um, which can absolutely wreak havoc mm. on the brain's ability to experience joy and anticipate pleasure and stay motivated. Depression, grief, and addiction, all, it's like 
they all have a very similar effect on the brain's ability to experience positive motivation and take joy in, in everyday life. Mm. Um, and exercise is, as far as I can tell, because I looked for it in the, in the research, as far as I can tell, it's the only thing that you can choose to do that has that kind of impact on your brain in the long term. Wow. That's number one. I could keep that's going, not, but do you want to That's number one. What, give me a couple others. Okay. Uh, number two, this is going to sound super cheesy, but I believe this is find a way to be of service to others. Um, I mean, the research really supports this as well. But if you think about, you know, we talked about depression as being possibly for some people, it's like a defeat response where you've had experiences in life that have misled you into believing that you don't have value or that you aren't cared about or there's nothing you can do to make a difference in your life or in the world. And the fastest way to get contradictory evidence is to volunteer to yeah. help someone. I, there have been a couple times in my life when I was struggling where I re-engaged with not, not just like donating money when I can, but to show up to a place and help people. Um, first was when I was in graduate school and um, was working in a food kitchen and preparing food and serving food. And then later on, um, starting to work as an adoptions counselor for animal rescue organizations, where I would actually go and, and adopt out animals who otherwise might be um, homeless or even euthanized. When you do that, the thing that is so great about, about helping others or volunteering is people see you differently mm. in that role. There already was in you that good. Like whatever good is in you, often when you're in a situation of being able to help others, it just gets reflected back to you. And the same thing is true for me in, in teaching as well. I always say like my students like me so much more than like my family members. There's something <laughs> about a role where you're trying to help others where they see you differently. They appreciate you more. It's yeah. such a gift if you have a voice in your head that says you have nothing to offer, nobody cares about you, there's no good in the world because there's, you get this sort of reciprocity where you tap into your desire to do good. You see, first of all, that you aren't the only one suffering. That's another great thing about helping others is it makes visible what might otherwise have been invisible. As you see how many other people are struggling um, with food scarcity, how many other people are struggling with addiction, whatever, whatever capacity you're able to volunteer or serve in, you start to realize you aren't alone. Um, even if that struggle is different than your own, you see the common humanity of it. And again, that people see the good in you. So that, I'm sure that sounds cheesy, but I'm going to, no. I'm going to stand, stand in the truth of that. And then the third thing. And there's, and there's science that backs service. Yeah. yeah. And not only that, um, you know, I mentioned this in my TED talk. So of course you can always find studies showing that stressful life circumstances are bad for your health. So if you lose your job, if you get divorced, um, if you experience trauma, could that increase your risk of physical health problems, diseases, new mental health challenges? Yes. But there are all of these studies showing that if you are someone who regularly volunteers or you have a caregiving role that is not in and of itself a major source of stress. I mean, there are caregiving roles that are enormously stressful. But if you're able to, to give care in a way that is not that extreme, that those events don't take the same toll on your physical or mental health. You know, like there are studies showing that, that literally you can you know, get fired or get divorced and you would expect it to cause all sorts of problems for your health and your mental health. And that trend or that effect disappears from the population 
of people who are regularly giving back to their communities or providing care to others. Um, so there is lots of great research. Mm, it's powerful. And then the third thing I will say is, we and I were talking about this before we went <laughs> live, uh, is rescue an animal. Because one of the only things that can really help, again, beyond like get, get on the right antidepressant medication, if that's for you, but one of the only things that you can choose in any given moment that is incredibly helpful for depression or grief or trauma is to have a relationship with an animal who depends on you and who you can have that success experience of providing the care that they need. And, uh, and actually, in, like, in many of my books, I've written about um, research studies done with, with groups of people who are healed through their relationships of providing care to animals, wow. including, you know, people who experienced uh, enormous childhood trauma and came to view themselves as essentially like broken or unlovable, rejected, mm -hmm. and then to then go out and adopt or train an animal who was going to be euthanized because it was violent or it was rejected or it was abandoned. And that you, you know, in providing that care and you see the enormous beauty and wonder in that animal and they see it in you. Um, wow. those, that's your three tips. You know, it's interesting. Would you have a fourth one? So I can tell you what my own research has looked at in the past decade is meditation. You know, I'm somebody who found meditation initially as a tool for dealing with um, physical pain and anxiety. In this section, psychologist Katie Morton shares how we can cope with emotions that make us feel overwhelmed and stuck. Is there a point in time where it can be, we can be too positive and it can hurt us because we don't deal with the things that have traumatized us? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's tricky because everyone's different, but I believe that when we're ignoring how we really feel and only focusing on, you know, how good we can make things and we're not actually acknowledging the bad, because I people always say like good feelings, bad feelings, they're all feelings and they're all okay. Mm. And so I think when we go, you know, when we ignore a complete chunk of our life and our experience and focus instead, it's great to focus on the good, but you still have to acknowledge the, the upsets the things that yeah. don't turn out the way you planned. And that doesn't make it bad. That's just life, you know? What does it mean we have to acknowledge? It's about uh, allowing yourself to feel it, whatever that is. Like, um, if I need to cry, I'm going to let myself cry. If some days I just can't get out of bed and do all the stuff I need to do, maybe that's a sign that I need to take care of myself, right? I need to just allow myself to have the ups and downs at the same time. And this is why it's tricky for people is I don't want you to like ruminate or like, you know, just let yourself wallow. There's a time for acknowledgement, feeling, venting about it to people, you know, therapist, a friend, but then, then what? Okay. Then we take the steps to move mm -hmm. forward. How long should we ruminate, vent, grieve over uh, a situation that affects us? And does it matter the, the weight of the situation where it might be a death or of someone close to you versus someone said something mean to me that triggered me from childhood struggles. Like how long do we, is there a rumination period that is healthy? Are we all different in how we grieve and heal and move forward? Is it the level of trauma that matters? Yeah, a lot of it has to do with the, the level. So if it's someone just said something mean that really hurt my feelings, or let's say I had a really bad interview, I need to get a job and it just went horribly. And so the whole day I'm feeling terrible. Um, that's okay to give yourself that day, 
and maybe the beginning of the next day and then we move on what's next what's another thing i can can i send out my resume right. to someone else you know then right. we take action um but then when it comes to like death in the family a or break up yes there's like the top 10 most stressful things in your life like moving divorce um death in the family just to name a few um and i know moving sounds crazy but if you've ever moved you know how stressful it is very stressful that those are things that are okay to give yourself like a month or two of adjustment time knowing that you know there still needs to be action in there like hey if i'm having a tough time functioning in my life i i I can't be there for my friends or my family. I can't do my job, you know, things like that. Then I should seek out professional help, like a therapist or psychiatrist or, you know, any of those things. Why is moving top of the list of stresses, <laughs> traumas? Is it because we've lived in this old identity and this, this home feeling and it's just like a newness or a new identity or what is it? I think it's a lot of things. Some of it is newness. Also routine. We love routines. Our, our brains, our bodies love that. I mean, if, you, if any of you have ever tried to get up around the same time and you have like rituals in your day, super helpful for our mental health, physical health, all that good stuff. So moving disrupts everything, right? We have to find new places for everything. The whole scenario of where we're at and what it feels like, it's just everything is so different. Not to mention you know, having to package up all your stuff. It can be know, it's just right? overwhelming. It's, it's traumatic in itself. Even <laughs> though it can seem exciting, it can also be traumatic. Yes. Maybe that's why the first, my, my girlfriend moved uh, Christmas Day, essentially like Ooh. six months ago, right before Corona. And she moved from a different country in with me. And it was kind of traumatic for both of us. I was excited. I think we were both excited. But then it was like, oh, but this is a challenge for her. She doesn't know where to go to get you know, her nails done, her food, or find friends, and just the normalcy of it. And it's a different culture. It's a different country. It's, you're living with someone now. Yeah. And I had my routine, but she didn't have hers. And so I had to constantly, like, you know, work together to make yeah. it work. So it's stressful for sure. I can, I can relate to that, and I didn't have yeah. to move. I'm interested because my entire childhood, I had a sense of deep loneliness, deep insecurity, loneliness, worry, fear that no one was ever going to like me and no one was ever going to love me. And I'm, I'm assuming that it was a number of the instances I experienced in my life, the number of um, stories, the number of things I witnessed and experienced that built the story in my mind that no one's going to like me or love me. And I took it upon myself when I was a teenager. When I started to have friends, when I was a teenager in high school, I started to still feel a sense of loneliness with people around me and people liking me. I still felt a deep sense of loneliness and the need to get people to like me. Mm -hmm. And I, I took it upon myself to, to overcome that challenge by spending a lot of deep alone time and falling in love with myself and falling in love with like who I am and writing letters to myself, taking myself out on dinner dates but alone movies all the time to the point where I said, you know what? I really enjoy my own company. I don't need to feel good around other people anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's a bonus. I love people still, but it's like, I love being alone. Yeah. But it took me having kind of the, the vision to break this mold. It took me like creating challenges for myself, like experiencing deep pain of, you know, figuring out how to love myself what are your thoughts on loneliness? Why do people feel lonely in general when they have lots of friends or they don't have friends? And what do you think is kind of the root of loneliness? 
Yeah. I love that. First of all, that's like all the homework I give my patients all the time. Like, you need to, <laughs> like dating yourself. Really? Yeah. It, like writing letters. I mean, if any of my viewers are listening to this, they know how often I talk about writing letters to yourself, mm. love, love letters, um, letters from your childhood self to your adult self. Mm. I could really get into that. Um, how, to, how to hug your childhood self now and heal. Yes. Oh my goodness. And let them feel heard and understood oh. in a way they couldn't. Oh, that's so I much of like, this. Oh, you just feel it, right? As a, oh, an adult, man. you're like, oh, that was so hard. But I think uh, loneliness happens for a lot of reasons. Loneliness occurs, I think, uh, for some people, it's because we never let people truly know us, either because it doesn't feel safe or we don't truly know ourselves. Oh, how do we get to know ourselves? You have to be curious. Mm. I think so often we, we judge. I mean, I'll be honest, as a kid, I, there's so many awkward moments in my life or times when I wished, like I, I grew up in the country. And so some of my friends had like wealth, some didn't, some parents were like business people. My dad was a boiler maker. So we were very like blue collar. I grew up on a Christmas tree farm. Um, and there were times I wanted for that, you know, how come I can't have that? Every kid has that, right? You, or why don't, doesn't my body look this way? Why am I so gangly? And why is this look, you know, there's so many things that as a kid, I was so uncomfortable. And I think being open to being curious about that. Like, why am I uncomfortable? What is so wrong with me? So often we just accept something's wrong with me. And then we take That's what that I thought my whole life. I was like, something's wrong with me. No one, you know. Yeah. No one's going to understand one. it. I'm, I'm wrong. I'm bad. Uh, you know. Oh, I'm totally. stupid. All this stuff. We have those thoughts. Uh, there was something I'd read. I forget the study that it was that supported this, but somewhere between 60,000 and 90,000 new thoughts every day, or not new thoughts, but just thoughts. And 94% of them or something are the are thoughts bad. we've had. We've already had Oh, them. we've already, we've repeating the thoughts. So, at, and most, a lot of them are bad. I will be honest. I, I would estimate like 60% of them are negative. Well, they're probably like fear-based of like worry-based mm -hmm. of, am I looking good? Or does this, you know, what do they think about me, right? Yeah. And that's because our brain is wired to seek out threat, right? It keeps us safe, make sure we're okay. And good things aren't threatening. So, of course, we're going to focus on like, hey, that person was whispering when I walked in the room. I think they're talking about me. I don't think they like me. You know? I mean, so how do we train our minds for positivity without it hurting us? Part of it is just noticing our thoughts. Uh, so often we have them uh, kind of building off of the loneliness, right? We have these thoughts that some that shame built and guilt built, like something's wrong with me. That's shame speaking out, saying something's intrinsically wrong. People aren't going to like you. Um, you're so stupid. All of those things. We have to notice if we're having those. If those are the thoughts that we're like taking up our, it's taking up our brain space and our time. And we're having 90,000 of them in a day. Like it's gonna, you're gonna us. feel lonely. You're gonna feel, you're gonna be sick. You're gonna be sad. You're gonna be worried and stressed and anxious. So yeah. how do we then get to the root of the loneliness so that we're not feeling lonely anymore? I'm hearing you say we need to discover and, and pay attention to who we are. We need to explore ourselves. We need to, you know, what else does that look like? Yeah, I think, um, Part of it is recognizing why kind of we said like it could be because you don't know yourself or you're afraid to let people know you, you know, um, so recognizing that recognizing, um, you know, how honest we're being with ourselves and others. A lot of loneliness comes out of that. But when it comes, it really, comes you mean by not, we're not revealing who we are. We're hiding things. Yes. We're not opening up fully. We're, we have yeah. secrets that we're unwilling to share because we feel like other people are going to shame us or not like us. Exactly. I can't tell you how many times I ha hear from my patients or viewers that they don't feel comfortable telling their friends, close mm -hmm. friends, that they're having a hard time. So they're like, oh, I don't want them to think I'm attention seeking. Right. I don't want them to think, you know, and we're, we're making those assumptions, right? Like anxiety comes out of either uh, we think we're like reading the magic eight ball into the future 
or we're focused on the past mm -hmm. and we can't just be present. Um, and so a lot of people will say, you know, say, I can't even tell them when I'm having a tough time, but we've put ourselves in that own, our own jail with that. Right. No yeah. one else put that there. We're saying oh, like, it's not okay. Yeah. I feel like, a, you know, I feel like a lot of people want to help someone. Like if you say mm -hmm. like, no, I'm actually kind of struggling with this today. I feel like people want to be a solution, want to be a listening ear, want to be a helping hand if their friend is going through a challenge. I think when you, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think if you're always negative, like, oh, my life is over every day with your friends, that's a drag. Yes. And, and you don't want to be always in need of support, I'm assuming. Well, it's not even need, in need of support. I think it's not taking sage advice, like you're asking for assistance but you're not accepting of any of it. So you're really not asking, you know what I mean? Right. And I think that's when it becomes like, I call like an emotional vampire or like a toxic relationship where you're just like, if you're the person trying to offer that help, it's just like they're taking and taking and you're giving and you're giving and they're not getting anywhere. It's, the, it's like being a mentor in, in business or life. I get a lot of people that ask me, you know, to, to pick my brain or to give them mentorship. And the worst thing that a mentor can have is someone who, waste their time who doesn't take mm -hmm. action i'm like okay here's the game plan if this is what you want go do this for the next 60 days yeah. and then when they don't do it you're like why did i waste my time yeah if i'm prescribing you something to try whether it works or not and you don't do it and you keep wanting more advice it's a time suck uh, totally and it doesn't benefit either of you right because no. it's it's just lip service it's not actually going to turn out to, to be anything and so, mm -hmm. say someone's feeling really lonely right now whether it's they've been lonely before Corona or now it's like they feel even more lonely. Like what can they do? You know, three to four things they could do for the next 30 to, to 90 days mm -hmm. to help them discover themselves, to help them become a little less lonely and fall in love with themselves a little more. Yeah. There's a couple of things. Um, first kind of going back to what we we're talking about originally is, is noticing your thoughts because I do believe if we are able to change our thoughts, we change our life. It's, it's miraculous and it's very simple, but it's also very difficult. So if they notice those thoughts and track down your top five, okay? Because remember we're saying most of them are repeat thoughts. So those could be things like, I'm not good enough. They're not gonna like me. I'm a loser. I don't know, trust me, we've all had those thoughts, no judgments. Write down your top five. And then I want you to work using bridge statements, I call them, into more positive. Because no one's gonna believe, I mean, I'm sorry, but if I think I'm stupid, I can't be like, I'm smart, I'm smart. I'm not going to believe it. Even in my head, I'm just like, that's a lie. That's a lie. So, There's no, there isn't proof to show. Like if, for me, exactly. I thought I've been stupid my whole life because I was always in the bottom of my class with my grades. So I was like, there's no evidence. Yeah. So it's a lie if I say I'm smart because I don't believe I'm confident enough to, to feel smart. Yeah, because you're checking your facts, right? And you're like, exactly. hey, based on, what I, based on our horrible schooling system. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I, was, I was very street smart, but I didn't mm -hmm. calculate that and I wasn't aware yeah. of that. Well, it's not so, measured, right? Right now, right? Okay, so, so bridge statements, what, mm -hmm. what does that look like? It lives in possibility land. It's like, it's possible, like for your example, let's say, maybe I'm not as dumb as I think I am. It's possible that I could have other gifts in other ways that I'm intelligent. Mm, I'm open, like to, open to that idea. Yeah. So we're not saying I am or I'm not. We're just like, it's possible I'm not 100% correct on this. And then we just kind of live in that land and start moving a little bit more. Then the next step would kind of be something like, you know, I do think I have some street smarts. So it's possible that I'm intelligent in that realm. Maybe. I'm going to look into that. Mm, 
Okay. You're kind of building your evidence along with these bridge statements into the space of, you know, I'm super smart. Gotcha. Okay. So that's the, the second step. What, what's after that? What's the next so phase? Then once we've done that, that kind of work, I think um, the letters to yourself, super helpful. I love that you did that. But come on now, Katie, isn't this super woo-woo-y and self-helpy hey, that's like, <laughs> there's no science that backs this? And... No, there is science that backs it. So the, I mean, in as short and simple as a way I can explain it, um, you know, we always hear that old adage, like you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but you can. Every day our brain is learning. In our hippocampus where memories are formed, it creates these new neurons every day. And those neurons get together with each other to create memories and learnings, right? So each and every day, whether we recognize it or not, we're learning new things. And instead of taking that opportunity to teach ourselves nasty things, like I'm horrible, I'm stupid, let's take that opportunity to teach ourselves things that are helpful, supportive. You know, Maybe I can get to know myself because I've never taken the opportunity to actually learn about what makes me tick. I've just numbed out and zoomed through life. So what do these letters look like? Is it once a day you're writing a letter? Is it once a week, month? What, and what is the letter saying? Um, I like to keep it pretty simple so that it's something we can do. Because I think too often in therapy, especially, and in the woo-woo land of psychology, that we can like self-help land, um, it can get too labor-intensive and then we don't do it. So I like to keep it to um, a letter to yourself tomorrow. Because the only person I'm competing with is really myself like yesterday. Ooh, yeah. And so if we keep it to that, like, um, you know, dear, dear self, you know, it could be like today I hope for, or I'm grateful for this tomorrow. I hope to, I want you just to keep it in a, you know, 24, 48 hour window of what you are grateful for, what you hope for and what maybe didn't work out. Again, we don't want to negate the things that aren't good. We just want to acknowledge them like, Hey, I tried this and I still felt bad. So I'm not going to do that one tomorrow. I'm going to try this. Yeah. And so it just keeps us kind of moving forward and keeping it short and sweet. Just those like, I'm grateful for, I'm hopeful for things that worked out or didn't work out. You're done. It's kind of like, that's why five minute journals are so popular. Yeah, exactly. To keep with that. And I would encourage people to try to do this. If you can every day, awesome. But at least every other day, just so you're mm. checking in with yourself um, to see how you're moving along, how you're doing. And I think that will give you the thing that's cool about journaling is we can go back then and be like, oh my God, me six months ago would never have thought that I could do this. Or, you know, we, we lose sight of our own growth and development because we're with ourselves all the time. I know. So. so I really like this idea of quick, short letters to yourself tomorrow. I'm a big fan of meditation. I was just mm -hmm. talking with my buddy Jay Shetty last night about meditation and how we talk about meditation so much in kind of our space. But he was like, but 80% of the world, 90% of the world still doesn't know about meditation and isn't doing it. Even though we we hear it and talk about it so much, we think like we're sick of talking about the same thing. But I'm a big fan of meditating because I feel like you can be aware of your thoughts and you can start. And I like to plan the day. I do it in the morning and I like to mm -hmm. think about what do I want to create this day? What's the greatest version of myself today? But I really like the idea of, you know, self-meditating over pen and paper for tomorrow as well by writing a letter to yourself because you're setting an intention as well you're saying this is what i want to start thinking about brain yeah. when my brain starts saying you're ugly and stupid and worthless no i'm going to switch it and here's what we're going to do so you're just preparing yourself for all the different challenges that may come and i think correct me if i'm wrong but i think if we don't prepare ourselves or set ourselves up to win 
then we're always going to be in reaction mode because we mm -hmm. haven't trained our mind to win. Is that right? Yeah, 100%. It, it's like a confirmation bias. Like if I go looking, um, I'm always talking to my audience about this and my patients, like if I go looking for negativity, if I go looking for a reason to be upset, I'm going to find it. And so we want to make sure that we're looking for reasons to be excited, things that we can do better, uh, reaching the goals or, or being feeling productive that day, whatever that means for you. Productive might be I laid on the couch and did some self-care, watched some TV, talked to my friends, you know, that's still productive. But I think in a lot of ways, we just, we go searching for bad things yeah, and then we're yeah. surprised that we find them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Is there a next step in this process of loneliness and getting to know yourself? If you're doing the daily letters for tomorrow, what would you say are the next kind of steps? Yeah, I think the next thing, and this is going to be the hardest for people, and they're probably like, Ugh, but I want you to tiptoe into social land in an authentic way. So if we have friends that we already talk with <laughs> and we think, hey, they don't know me, you know, I'm still lonely, even though like I've heard from a lot of people, I can feel super lonely, even though I'm in a crowded room with people that I know. Um, mm -hmm. I want you to be more authentic. I challenge you to pick one person that I'll give you like two weeks to do this one person that you're going to be honest with about how you're doing or what's going on. And that doesn't not mean just say I'm fine. Everything's exactly. good. Exactly. Don't just repeat the same thing. You always say like, yeah, everything's great mm -hmm. when it's not, when you've got yeah. some underlying issue. Totally. We, instead we need to say something to the effect of, yeah, it's been kind of hard. You know, I've been going through a tough time. I mean, right now, especially with the coronavirus and our world feeling like it's turned upside down. It's a, I think it's even more acceptable to be like, yeah, it's been, it's been rough. You know, this, these past few months have been pretty terrible and they, they would understand, you know, and we're just tiptoeing. We're not sharing a bunch. I don't want you to like what I call like verbal diarrhea. Mm. We don't just want to share it bleh, right. all at once. We want to crap like, all over someone's face. Yeah, exactly. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I wasn't ready for that. Um, so we just want to start with little things like, Hey, yeah, last week was, was, was kind of bad, but you know, I'm trying again this week. How have you been? You know, we share a little bit, we reflect. It, so don't yeah. spend an hour just, uh, you know, going down the deep end, but open up some. Yeah. Letting them know that it's not all peachy keen all the time. What does that okay. do for you and other people when you open up a little bit? First of all, it allows you to be your authentic self so that people can slowly get to know you. Not to mention at the same time, you get to know yourself. And then it, that little bit of vulnerability leaves space for real relationships. And I think that that's why a lot of us are feeling lonely is because we don't really hmm. either know ourselves or allow other people to know us. And, you know, it's hard. It's uncomfortable. And that's why I want you to pick one person, one person you have. If we check our facts and our, you know, I always talk about being a detective. Maybe it's because I love crime shows, but pick <laughs> the like, right, you got to pick the right person you trust. Yes. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please spread the message of greatness to more people. You can text a few friends right now this link, lewishouse.com slash 1136, or just copy and paste this link wherever you're listening to it. You can subscribe to us also over on YouTube. We've got all of our videos and more you can check out there. And make sure you click the subscribe button right here on the School of Greatness on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening to these podcasts. And if you enjoyed this, please also leave a review. Click the review button right now. We'd love to hear from you and see what you enjoyed most from this episode. And I want to leave you with this quote from Fred Rogers, who said, anything that's human is mentionable, and anything that is mentionable can be more manageable. When we can talk about our feelings, they become less overwhelming, less upsetting, and less 
scary. And I love that quote. And if there's anything that is scary for you inside, I'm telling you, when you can learn how to share these things with a confidant, with a trusted friend, with the therapist, with an advisor, someone you look up to, when you have confidence to start sharing these things, that shame starts to go away. So don't hold anything in. Start sharing these feelings. And I'm telling you, it will free you from so many things. If no one's told you lately, I want to remind you that you are loved, you are worthy, and you matter, my friend. And you know what time it is. It's time to go out there and do something great. You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium bang and a Lufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range in a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.